driving long duration energy storage. What can the rest of the world learn from Asia's dominance of the floats and solar market? And there's trouble for solar in Vietnam. All this and much more in the April edition of the Solar Media Podcast. Hello and welcome to the new episode of the Sodium Media Podcast, sponsored this time by Honeywell. Um, joining me as ever is Andy Colthorpe, and we also have a debutant this uh, this month with Jules Scully. Guys, how are you both? Yeah, good, thanks. Good to make my debut here on the podcast, so yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, likewise, uh, thanks for having us on again, and yeah, look forward to seeing what, we're, what we can cover in the, in the time we've got, I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We've got, uh, needless to say, absolute reams of stuff to cover uh, this month. But I'm going to start off um, with the news that um, Elon Musk's company Neuralink could be getting involved in a sort of Jurassic Park remake. So I'm just going to, it sounds really, really bizarre. And I'm just going to read it out What straight from the, the original source, which is, it's a story which appeared in The Hill this week, uh, but it's using uh, tweets from Max Hodak, who works for Neuralink. So the the Hill being the otherwise serious US political... Andy, you're talking like this is not genuinely serious. Right, I'm just (laughs) just, going to go straight into it. Whenever I hear the words Elon and Musk coming out of your mouth... (laughs) I know it's not necessarily going to be about the, you know, the energy density of the batteries coming from the new gigafactories. Uh, yeah. It's more likely to be something along the crazy fringes of what volcano dwelling billionaire. Uh, I'm just, uh, yeah, I'm just going to have to go straight into this. The co-founder of the co-founder of Elon Musk company Neuralink tweeted on Saturday that the startup has the technological advances and savvy to create its own Jurassic Park. Going straight into Hodak's tweet, we could probably build Jurassic Park if we wanted to. We wouldn't be genetically authentic dinosaurs, but shrugging emoji, maybe fifteen years of breeding and engineering to get super exotic novel species. In the film Jurassic Park, scientists working for a wealthy industrialist are able to genetically engineer dinosaurs and are working towards opening the theme park to showcase them when things go wrong. I mean, that I get that that is a very succinct summary, but things go wrong kind of underplays what the plot of Jurassic Park is. And also the fact that Max here is tweeting like, yeah, we could do it if we wanted to, but I, I don't know, shrugging emoji. Well, I, I has he it- seen Jurassic Park? I'll give it two point two points from me there, my snap reaction. Because uh, you didn't tell me this story last night, but I have to admit, I just somehow didn't get around to reading it already. Uh, I mean, number, one, number one, I'd say if we wanted to, that's a big, that's a big key. They might not want to. They might decide that they, you know, with all that power, they might instead use it to cure cancer or whatever you know well this is it so there is that the original what the original tweet was alluding to i believe wasn't it i've i've i know i sent this to you as well andy but just for jules's benefit and everyone else there is this was tweeted out with that so kind of panel from i think it's like a spider-man comic and it's i don't i haven't seen this before but i just saw it tweeted last night but there is presumably some kind of villain in it who is basically able to 
it has it has the wherewithal to kind of like rewrite DNA and in it like Spider-Man turns around to this villain and just says you could literally do anything you want to you could cure cancer because you can rewrite DNA to which the villain turns around and says but I don't want to cure cancer I want to turn people into dinosaurs very very Elon Musk here I mean I'm going to say this I I don't think that that's a laudable aim by any means (laughs) but hear me out uh, so your man from Neuralink, I, I'm afraid I didn't catch his name, Max something from Max Neuralink. Hodak. Max yeah. Hodak from Neuralink. He did say in about, what, 15 years, 10 years? Yeah. Right. So uh, climate change being the crisis that is, and you know, <laughs> I, I do hope the levity of this opening section doesn't downplay that unduly. <laughs> but if apparently we've got 10 to 15 years, possibly less, to save the earth from the climate change crisis. Once yeah. we've done that, why not populate it with dinosaurs? Yeah, <laughs> I, can, I can, I can see that. The only thing I gives us all something about, doesn't it? The only thing I would add here is very much that this is all well and good, and they're saying yeah, ten to fifteen years, mm-hmm. we could do this. Mm-hmm. Elon Musk companies do not have the best track record of meeting targets, especially if they are set in time. So, as has been pointed out this week, Tesla did say that 2019 was going to be the year that the year of the solar roof tile. It's now two years on and we still haven't seen it. So maybe, I'm just going to put it out there, but... Elon Musk companies might be better served working on the products they already have developed rather than swanning about trying to recreate dinosaurs. I'm just going to put that out there. It might be a better use of their time, infinite money, and presumably infinite wisdom to get that done. I don't know. Maybe I'm just pontificating there. Uh, No, I mean, I don't think your point is invalid there by any means. Um, but I also do think perhaps we should just swiftly move on to the next topic. Yeah, I, I think we are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> speaking of something entirely more tangible then, um, and that is a, a smoother segue as you're going to get from me today, I'm afraid. Um, okay. The last month, we have seen considerable traction for long-duration um, energy storage technologies. Um, and I know, Andy, this is something that you've covered in, in particular. Um, it seems that the last few weeks, there's, there's been a real head of steam building up behind it. Yeah, well, I mean, it it does kind of come back to timelines somewhere out in the future a little bit, actually, I guess. But so oh, where to start with this one? So long duration energy storage being commonly defined um, as anything with the ability to store and more importantly, discharge energy over six hours plus. So. Uh, lithium-ion batteries of the type that, you know, Elon Musk, to his credit, um, did greatly popularise with the launch of the Powerwall and his um, large-scale battery products in 2015. Um, They would commonly supply sort of more high-power applications. So this is durations of storage from about 15 minutes or less, which is what you'd need in order to perform grid balancing frequency regulation services um, to kind of the higher end now, which is starting to see in places like California, 
which is about four hours of storage uh, with lithium-ion batteries. Now, you can store more than that with lithium-ion, but the fact is that it just gets more and more expensive um, and more difficult to control. Um, and so for many years now, people have been discussing um, bringing in other technologies that can do it. Um, and there's a very, very broad range of technologies. Um, I think the Energy Storage Summit USA that we held uh, recently, uh, one panel referred to a multitude of solutions um, that could be used. Um, and at the moment, so I guess the one that people might be most commonly uh, aware of is flow batteries. So flow batteries essentially give you the opportunity to decouple the energy and the power in a battery cell. And instead of the electrolytes being stored in the solid meat, um, you know, part of the, uh, the cell, they're actually, as they are in lithium ion batteries, they're stored in tanks um, of liquid electrolyte. And basically the longer you want to store energy for, or the more capacity of energy you want, you just build bigger tanks. Um, and so that means that basically for the same power, you can develop a much bigger amount of energy. And so flow batteries were originally uh, thought up by NASA. Uh, well, okay, so there's a long history behind them, which I'm not going to go into, but we've, we've done a few articles there. But they're kind of a, a technology that was originally come up with by NASA um, and a team at the University of New South Wales um, kind of perfected that with the vanadium flow battery. And it's a proven technology in that it definitely does work, um, but there's a couple of disadvantages over lithium-ion. Uh, the primary one being that lithium-ion batteries are also used in cars uh, or electric vehicles now and in consumer electronics. So there's millions of, of uh, amp hours and, and so on of lithium-ion batteries being made every year for different purposes, and this has brought down cost of lithium-ion batteries. Now, that luxury doesn't exist for the other long for the longer duration battery technologies that we currently have um flow batteries being kind of you know the the leading example really i guess um and so yeah i mean before we get into all the different kinds of um of the long duration tech i mean there so there has been some progress more recently um and so china for example is looking to build several uh, flow battery projects that are hundreds of megawatt hours in scale each. So there is a five hour duration, 100 megawatt battery. So that's 500 megawatt hours uh, being developed in uh, Xinjiang in Hubei province, China, uh, kind of propelled by a government program. And yeah, part of that program is that China is also rich in vanadium resources of its own. Um, so they can vertically integrate the manufacture of these batteries. And so there's a Canadian company called VRB Energy, um, which was, there's a long story there as well, but it was originally um, a Chinese company um, that was bought by a Canadian mining outfit. Um, and uh, so that Canadian mining outfit basically re reset that up as VRB Energy. Um, that have developed a large-scale pilot project um, in Hubei region. And that is going to be accompanied by... So that original demonstrator project was uh, 3 megawatts, 12 megawatt hours. And so essentially the first phase of this 500 megawatt hour battery is going to be a 40 megawatt, 200 megawatt hour first phase. 
um, and then a thousand megawatt per annum gigafactory and R and D center are being built in the region. So yeah, this is a, like a really big um, indicator to the market that the the technology is is kind of rapidly maturing. And you know, while we've seen quite a few flow battery projects um, using vanadium, uh, which is also a um, a byproduct to the steel manufacturing process and is used in manufacturing steel um, is kind of, you know, leading the way with that. Um, and we're also starting to see from a policy standpoint, um, a bit more of a push towards developing and maturing these technologies. So we were talking about um, the new secretary of energy in the U S Jennifer Granholm um, just recently in the last couple of weeks, uh, sent out a tweet saying that you know she believes uh, flow batteries are, are good for grid storage and the US Department of Energy is funding some research and development activities into those long duration flow batteries. So there's quite a lot happening there, um, albeit the R&D center that uh, Granholm's DOE is, built, DOE, sorry, is building isn't going to start construction until uh, 2025. Uh, in the northwestern US. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess drawing the circle back, because I feel like I've rambled on and not necessarily with purpose here, um, drawing it back to the timelines we were talking about and, you know, 15 years for dinosaurs or whatever, what have you, <laughs> um, we're talking about maybe... Um, so there was another session at the Energy Storage Summit USA that our publisher Solar Media held uh, a week or two ago um, hosted by Strategen Consulting and the California Energy Storage Alliance. And those two groups have put together a study um, basically talking about the need, the urgent need for long duration energy storage in California. Um, and similar calls have been made uh, for the UK um, and elsewhere as well. And I think what was really interesting about what Erin Childs, um, who's a, a manager at Strategen, uh, was saying in that, um, in that session at the Energy Storage Summit was that there's an urgent need for energy storage of between, you know, one, four hours over the next 10 years as the grid kind of goes to higher shares of renewable energy in California. Uh, and then between 2030 and 2050, uh, there will have to be a rapid, rapid acceleration of the um, deployment of that longer duration storage. So whatever technology that is, whether that's flow batteries or something else, um, by about 2030, it's more likely than not, um, you know, the emphasis is going to be less on lithium-ion batteries. But then the other side of that whole timeline factor is that if you're talking about planning an electric system, 10 years is not a long time. 15 years is not a long time. I mean, I'd say 15 years is ambitious for developing realistic dinosaurs. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's also... You know, it's not at all ambitious in terms of electricity system planning. You know, I mean, a lot of, a lot of, you know, these so-called eco-modernist kind of uh, renewables advocates uh, would say that nuclear and it, not renewables advocates, decarbonisation rather, would say that nuclear is a, a really good option for for carbon-free energy generation. And on one level, it kind of is. You know, I have personally have misgivings about the, the waste byproducts and the cost of it and what have you. But the fact is, it takes a very, very long time to build a nuclear power plant, you know, um, even if you're planning a, a natural gas plant, you know, again, it takes a very, very long time. 
So if you're planning for these things to go onto the system and realistically decarbonize, it's going to have to be the decisions are going to have to be made in the next you know couple of years at most uh, to impact on the system in 10 to 15 years time, I guess. Yeah, I know. I, I, funny enough, just to build on this, I was, I was speaking to um, someone in, in the sector, I won't name them just in case they kind of, this was a kind of background chat, but um, they very much approached the kind of grid operator um, semi-recently um, and basically explained to them that there's huge amounts of grid congestion where they are. Um, so essentially the conversation was, are you not concerned about the grid and obviously huge amounts of renewables coming on and the need for flexibility and the need for all of this kind of action to be taken now, as opposed to what's going to happen in 2030 when a lot of, a lot of countries do have obviously quite significant decarbonization targets and renewables going to do a lot of the heavy lifting there. By the time, is it, is it not best to start now and start planning and getting your systems kind of secure and ready and making sure you have the tech solutions and everything ready in place so that over the next eight, nine years, people can start to deploy them and get them in. And obviously, like you mentioned, a lot of these solutions aren't as quick to build out as a solar or, or anything else. So it is going to take some time. And, and basically, the, the snapshot of, this, of the discussion was that the grid operator was not underplaying it, but said it was all in hand, basically, that, that it, it's, it's fine. We, we, we kind of know what we do. We don't need kind of extra insight, which is a little bit, I, I don't know whether that's concerning or whether it's um, comforting that they think they've got it all in hand. Um, I would kind of plead caution on that, I think, because obviously long duration te- technology, there is going to be, I think, as as you've said, and as um, other people have alluded to, not least of all, Jennifer Granholm, there is going to be a definite role to play for them. So there is that planning, that kind of finance community to get behind some of these technologies as well. There's just so many things to move and we are running out of time quite significantly, I think. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, the other thing is, you know, as I mentioned before, kind of lithium ion batteries have have reached this massive scale of production and demand, you know, uh, which kind of helps to drive down the costs of their deployment. Um, And it's a little bit, you can't just sort of leave it in the hands of all these of these technology providers to be able to sort of you know come come up with miracle breakthroughs every year or two to kind of you know develop the the absolute best technology like that is to say a lot of these solutions are proven to work um they just need that kind of push to to actually get scale and you know people to believe in them to to be able to de-risk them you know so, I mean, along with flow batteries, so, I mean, there's been a couple of other indicators with flow batteries. I mean, so there's a vanadium, uh, I think South Africa's biggest vanadium producer, uh, a group called Bushfeld Minerals, uh, recently invested in Enerox, which is a Austrian company that markets a flow battery system uh, called Cellcube. Um, and again, you know, they've invested a portion of money, about $7.5 million dollars, towards Enerox's uh, $30 million um, uh, flow battery factory. And, you know, this would be like a 30 megawatts slash 120 megawatt hour annual output factory, uh, which is, you know, is nothing like a sort of gigafactories that your man Elon Musk and, you know, would build or whatever uh, for his dinosaurs or or what have you. 
but <laughs> I wish I hadn't brought it up now. But yeah, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, there's there's some investment going in there, and like it might not be the case that we we absolutely need gigafactories for for flow batteries. You might just want to have, you know, sufficient capacity deployed to deal with that sort of you know the higher end of the the long duration requirement for now and you know gradually over time it, it can build up but so yeah so along with flow batteries you've got some competition from other technologies as well so traditionally more than 90 percent of the world's energy storage is pumped hydro sure. um, but the majority of those you know the, they, they were built over you know as early as the the early 20th century and the majority were kind of built think the later ones are probably the the 1960s in the uk uh for example um australia could be getting its first pumped hydro plant for nearly 40 years i think it's been 37 years since the last one opened and there's actually a couple that are expansions of existing pumped hydro plants and pumped hydro is a very elegant uh carbon free um, cheap at the point of use way of storing energy for large amounts of time, you know, very, very uh, environmentally friendly as well. But obviously it requires the, exactly the right circumstances and the right geographies. You need basically two massive reservoirs of water, one above the other, and you need to be able to drop that that water. So that's the reason why you haven't had any new ones built in Europe for the last, uh, you know, 30 to 50 years, because it's just so hard to find a site. But in India, I think the cheapest um, renewable energy plus energy storage tender to date in the world anywhere uh, was renewables with pumped hydro, you know, which is considerable size. Uh, and then you've got lots of uh, other advanced tech. You've got sodium sulfur batteries, uh, which again is a high temperature, um, long duration technology uh, developed by NGK Insulators, which is a Japanese company uh, which uh, makes sophisticated industrial ceramics. And that's just been used at the first ever uh, solar plus storage plant in Mongolia. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, um, it's one that can be deployed at kind of uh, in, in very cold places or very hot places, uh, which again is an advantage over lithium ion. But again, um, I think at one of our events a year or two ago, uh, Gauthier Dupont, who's the uh, director of the power business at NGK Insulators based in Europe, was saying that without, they could halve the cost of manufacturing, but without larger factories, that's really difficult. Um, similarly, you've got Ambry's liquid metal battery technology, which is another high temperature uh, liquid metal uh, battery, which I haven't got the notes for in front of me, unfortunately, to go into more detail, right? But it was developed by a guy called Professor Donald Saddleway from the uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and that's being deployed potentially in hundreds of megawatts at a data center uh, somewhere in Nevada. Um, so that's really interesting. And then zinc batteries is the other one that, that people are a kind of well one of the other ones that people are getting kind of excited about from the electrochemical point of view um and so yeah so zinc batteries are kind of between six and 15 hours of storage and there's a lot of competing folk trying to bring those up um there's also of stuff that's actually getting deployed liquid air energy storage uh which is developed by a british company called highview power and this is again it's a low-cost solution uh, which does kind of require a bit more of a footprint than a electrochemical battery, 
but it uses a lot of engineering and technology and basically off-the-shelf products that come from other um, power gen and, and, uh, and gas industry sort of technologies, uh, meaning that, you know, it's fairly simple to replicate in, in lots of different markets. So there's all these options out there. And I think, you know, one really interesting quote from Javier Cavado, who's the CEO of Hive Power, a little while ago, is, you know, I asked him about how do you feel about all these other different kinds of technologies that are going to be competing? You, you've got other thermal energy storages as well, in, in addition to all the stuff we've spoken about, um, and a bunch of mechanical energy storage uh, methods. And Javier said that at the end of the day, those aren't the competition. Fossil fuels are the competition. Like, you know, the wedge of whatever it is that these energy storage companies can take is from each other is very, very small, but the wedge that they can take off the fossil fuel industry is, you know, ultimately very, very big, you know, and it's the goal that, that, that everyone needs to kind of pursue together. So, I mean, I guess that's what he says on the record and in private, there's probably going to be a few cases where these technologies go up for tender against each other. But it's interesting that a lot of them have very particular strengths and, you know, dare I say, weaknesses. And so it will be a question of, you know, deploying kind of an all of the above uh, when it comes to a lot of these things, I guess. Yeah, it's quite an interesting discussion around kind of almost like a technology arms race, because if you compare it to what we're kind of seeing in, in the solar sector as well, between um, the different kinds of heterodontion technologies, which are vying for to be the, the kind of next big thing in solar manufacturing. Um, there's always, this, as has been the case for um, companies, a lot of kind of throwing their weight behind a particular technology. And then um, one has like one out um, and others have kind of swung behind that. So you obviously have that kind of split in the camp at the moment, uh, not just in the actual technologies in solar, whether it's um, heterojunction, IBC, that kind of stuff, uh, but also in terms of the wafer and cell size. So you obviously have a lot of the industry throwing their weight behind uh, 180 millimeter um, sizes against the slightly larger 210. So it's, it's quite an interesting kind of debate because whereas there is like you say with storage and the other kinds of long duration technologies there's un unquestionably space for everyone but it's who's gonna i think it's going to be a case of who wins ultimately in terms of price and kind of efficiency and, and, and that kind of stuff so it's um certainly one to watch i think over the next year or two at least um but moving on i'm going to move on just really briefly to to bring in a, a market where storage could unquestionably be of some use um this is a, a really interesting story which we've been covering for the last few months um but it's the case of vietnam and their solar market um obviously at the start of the year we were um almost blown away by the fact that um the kind of runaway success of their feeding tariff scheme last year um deploying nine gigawatts of um of, so of solar on, on rooftops in um in the country um, six gigawatts of which was deployed in December alone. So you kind of, if you want an indicator of the boom and bust cycle that a feeding tariff can create, that's it. Um, but it's now starting to kind of being felt, uh, especially on, 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 a, on a grid um, perspective. Um, and we're, we've seen some reports locally, something that we're looking to cover um, kind of imminently, but there are reports that the, the country's grid operator, EVN, um, alongside its uh, the country's national load dispatch centre, um, is going to have to 
curtail quite significant amounts of solar and wind in the second half of the year. When I say significant, we're talking about something, especially towards the end of the year, something in the region of 340 to 400 billion kilowatt hours are looking at potentially being cut per month. Um, this is going to be significant for obviously developers and who and operators of renewable assets in the country. Um, if they're being curtailed, they're just not going to get paid for that power. Um, so what's that do to project um, economics? How is that going to impact the financing of these projects? Um, it's, it's, it's difficult to say because we've obviously seen other boom and bust cycles like this in the past, but I don't think off the top of my head, I certainly can't think of anything whereas we've seen in Vietnam where something like six gigawatts has been deployed in a single month on, on rooftops. And there is this growing concern about not necessarily, obviously you have that peak during the middle of the day when solar is generating quite significantly. So where is, how is that going to impact on demand? Um, we also have that kind of evening peak between, I think the, the, the settlement period that they're particularly concerned about in Vietnam is that half 5 p.m. to half 6 p.m. Um, hour when demand really drops off for, as people start to obviously commute back from their workplace to their home. Um, and solar generation pretty much falls off, starts to fall off. So there's going to be that real concern. Um, this is obviously how EVN are planning to deal with it. Is it a long-term solution? Probably not. Um, they're going to have to think of something uh, there, but... It's it's a pretty it's a pretty sour note to end this half of the of the show, but hopefully. Let's let's not be entirely sour. I mean, let's just pause for a second there, because I mean, when we brought that story up uh, a couple of podcasts ago, six gigawatts in a month—that's basically three large nuclear power plants worth of capacity. You know. Yeah. Like that, oh, is, not, that is an immense feat, I think. You know, and I think it will be like a lesson to a lot of places if Vietnam is able to kind of integrate that, you know. I mean, uh, Jules, am I right in thinking you lived in, in Vietnam yourself a little while? Yeah, I was in Ho Chi Minh City for, for two years. So, yeah, I mean, I guess it would be interesting as well with the how it affects with the monsoon season with, you know, from about, I guess, three or four most days in, in the summer, there's heavy rain. So I guess in the south of the country, that'll affect solar output there. Um, another another big thing that they're kind of concerned about speaking of the monsoon season is the um, increase in hydropower during that period because obviously yeah. water swells and they generate a lot more hydropower during the monsoon season than uh, they do ordinarily so that's kind of an added complication so it almost throws in that which we've seen elsewhere is that balance of renewable power versus weather systems and modeling and basically like like we've mentioned with the storage technologies having that overall system plan and strategy and uh, almost having to have that forethought of not just thinking in seasonal factors, but yearly seasonal factors as well. So there's, there's a lot like, of moving parts. They get like super hot in the, uh, in the early afternoon kind of time as well. Right. Presumably. Yeah. I think in, yeah, in summer it sort of really gets hot in the afternoon and then, then the monsoon yeah. hits. So I guess that, that would also affect the uh, output. I suppose. You kind of wonder like, I mean, I remember hearing, uh, uh, talking a couple of years ago to a company in America that's basically trying to develop, uh, you know, air conditioning, basically like a thermal energy storage for, for air conditioning units. 
And like, so if you could absorb the solar during those, you know, the hottest hours and just essentially pump that straight into storage for use in people's air conditioning units, that would be like a really effective kind of demand response. And like, I mean, there's a, there's an opportunity to try out some things there, I guess, that, you know, other markets might not necessarily look to. Like, I think it'd be really interesting how that Excellent. plays out. Anyway, I'm just thinking aloud there. I think that's time for a, for a quick break. Honeywell offers integrated enterprise solutions that can help you harness the full power of renewable energy and your distributed assets. Take advantage of industry-leading battery energy storage systems, cybersecurity, guaranteed KPI performance, and real-time visibility and analytics. Plus, Honeywell can deliver you both insight and control for more profitable operations. Meet the future with Honeywell, your end-to-end -end energy management solution partner. Aside from its podcasts, Soda Media is perhaps best known for its industry-leading trade titles, such as PV Tech, Energy Storage News, and Current. Subscribe to our daily newsletters today to receive industry insights and analysis straight to your inbox. And welcome back to the April 2021 episode of the Sony Media Podcast. We've gone over um, quite a bit on long-duration storage technologies. Now we're going to throw back to George, who's going to uh, give us a bit of a lowdown on another kind of real growing topic that we've been covering this year, which is floating solar. Um, George, I know you've been covering a lot of um, not just kind of the actual technology side, but also how it's working um, in different geographies. And I know that um, for the last edition of PVZ Power, you you kind of covered the Asian market and kind of basically detailed the significant growth that we've seen of floating solar in, in Asia and what other markets can take. Yeah, so I mean, we've seen um, in Asian markets, well, in Southeast Asia and China, there's been sort of way ahead of the rest of the world in terms of floating solar deployment. We're kind of looking at um, what other markets can learn from that, particularly in Europe, in terms of policy, I suppose. Um, so with as with ground mount solar, China's kind of led the way and they've got scores of sort of 100 megawatt plus um, floating solar projects. Um, and part of these were uh, introduced thanks to its um, China's um it's um sorry it's off. policy yeah policy called um it's they bit to deploy the projects on flooded um coal mine areas so it's uh, from um it's from 2016 and i think it's for about a, a gig one gigawatt of um capacity um and so the yeah there was about that much and um, so SunGrow um, floating was uh, installed uh, quite a lot of these 400 megawatts, I think, of these projects. Um, I guess with floating solar, it kind of, when people talk about it in Asia, it seems like it's quite a lot of mentioned in Southeast Asia that it could be used because of the limited land space and the high population density. But obviously with China, they've, they've got a lot of space and they've kind of stormed their head with deploying way more than any other country. So I think this SunGrow in particular said that this example of um, the government tending or out, tendering this one gigawatt of capacity is perhaps something that other countries can learn from, um, particularly in making use of these areas that would otherwise not being used. 
um, and also there's sort of benefits from because it's on flooded coal mines there's benefits for local employment where miners can be retrained in, in deploying solar projects um, so I guess yeah alongside China um, there's been well in in Taiwan neighboring Taiwan as well um, we've recently seen a local developer called Chenya Energy um, complete 180 megawatt project which is um, sort of near shore um, deployed um, I think it's in one of the, the most populated, densely populated areas of the island. Um, and it's quite an interesting project in that when the tide is, is uh, low, the, the project actually is resting on the, the seabed. And then when, when the tide rises, um, it floats and it's kind of attached to the seabed. Um, well, the, the floating floats are attached to, to um, concrete columns that I guess are drilled into the seabed. Um, and Chenya was also, uh, they welcomed the government efforts, I think, to, to back uh, floating solar, um, which and the company receives a feed-in tariff there. Um, the government offers a, a special feed-in tariff specifically for floating solar to encourage the development. And I think they've also promoted um, uh, banks to finance floating solar projects, which... Um, I guess in other parts of the world has kind of been an issue with uh, there's been a little bit of a reluctance, I guess, among banks and perhaps governments in the West to, um, to back this, this technology. But uh, saying that with in, well, in the last few months, there have been more uh, developments, bigger developments and announcements popping up in Europe, I suppose, most notably in, in the Netherlands where Bewa is I think around half a dozen projects there. Um, so yeah, and I think one thing that we should, um, well, going forward, there should be more um, kind of collaboration between the industry with a recent uh, recommended practice from uh, DNV, which was just released uh, last week. Um, and that brought together a host of industry players to kind of uh, collaborate on best practices um, in terms of operation and maintenance and kind of so that there's more trust in in the sector and to reinsure both investors and governments that, you know, it's, it's a viable solution alongside uh, ground mounted PV. I think it, I think one of the, like the, the, the numbers you mentioned there kind of for floating solar are just insane in comparison because like you obviously have, I know it, um, in Europe, the, the the largest kind of floating solar off the top of my head is, is is a few tens of megawatts, and I know we've covered even in even in the US where like there is this kind of obviously there's there's ample land for um, ground mount solar installs, but they are still with, um, at least experimenting with floating solar in some states. The largest one in the US is is less than ten megawatts, I, I think. So to go from those two really established solar markets in Europe and the US still only really making those tentative first steps into floating solar and deploying at quite small scales to then have pro uh, projects in China coming up, which are 100, 140 megawatts in size. It, it's enormous in terms of the, the upscaling there. And I think it, it's really interesting to see a what can translate because obviously the, there are differences in Chinese policy compared to European and US policy. And 
we like like you mentioned they're they're incentivizing banks to to pick up on broken solar projects and, and they're helping developments in that field because it is such a strategically important area um but also just in terms of the technical feasibility of these projects like it you mentioned with the, with the chenna project of having the technical capacity to develop a, pro- a floating solar project which dips as the the tide rolls out and is able to rest on the seabed and things like that um is really significant and I, it would just be really interesting to see how much of that know-how translates into the european us markets even like um everywhere else where where solar can be deployed so i think obviously we're not expecting any kind of market to overtake china but if they can at least start to pick out on things and and identify where these projects can come ahead i think it, it only stands to be uh, for the good of the, good of the entire industry i think having, sorry go on. go on i was just having a quick look at some of the stats in the articles you've written on on this uh, jules and like yeah i mean on that dmv best practice guideline is apparently from just 10 megawatts of floating pv in 2015 it's two gigawatts by the end of 2020 you know and Right. Well, well, we just heard that about 50% plus of that is in China. Um, you know, however you look at it, that's an enormous, enormous rise, you know, like super quick. Um, and yeah, that that largest one in the US is 4.78 megawatts, but but maybe that will move on rapidly. I thought it's really interesting what you said about there being specific uh, kind of permitting help for floating solar in certain markets, like you said, in Taiwan and, and China. I mean, in Japan, I gather that floating solar is basically just going to be treated as ground mount. So a lot of people in Japan are, are thinking that floating solar could be a good thing because, you know, it, it is very short on land for ground mount projects. Um, and you can get that. And we, we do get really hot summers here in Japan as well. So if you put floating solar on reservoirs, I think one of the advantages that we haven't yet uh, talked about is that you can you know you can slow down the evaporation of water from reservoirs, and at the same time you can cool the modules so that they're kind of you know um, operating at a, a higher optimal efficiency. So even from the outside looking in, you know when I when I when I was a when I was a youngin getting into this uh, this solar game kind of it's, like you it's know back, it's just back when the original dinosaurs were around. Back when I was wearing a flat cap and yeah yeah we ate coal. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, but I mean, there was only one company making the structures um, for, for floating solar, and that was a French company called Cielo Terre. You know, that, um, yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously you come across them, but they are still probably the major provider, but they're not the only one by any means. You know, you've got yeah. several others now, as far as I'm aware, you know, and it's it's something that can be replicated across a lot of markets, I guess. There was because a really... we... Sorry, George, go on. Yeah, with the um, you mentioned about the hydropower there, I think that's potentially an area where uh, developments in Europe could be. We could see more developments there with making use of the the good grid connection that's already in place. Um, I know in, in Portugal they've already they've mentioned that their their auction this year could feature um, floating solar on on the country's reservoirs. So that'll be interesting to see how it play out plays out following the the well the success their successful auction for ground mounted solar last year um so yeah that, that's potentially an area where and it, there's been a sort of a few smaller developments announced but i guess it'll be interesting to see as as 
well in the next few years when larger and larger projects are deployed. Yeah, there was the, there was a really interesting just going back to the kind of water quality. There was a really interesting study which uh, which came out earlier this month as well um, from a university um, in the UK, which actually explored um, when, and tested the water quality beneath the panels of a, of a floating solar project. And they actually, as well as like the usual findings that you would expect to find, um, they also found that there was a decreased um, what's called stratification, which is where different bits of water um, have different temperatures. So, for instance, like if, if on a on a hot day, the the hot the top layer of water obviously heats up um, at a different rate to the to kind of deeper depths, um, and that actually, according to the study, this stratification of, of water uh, actually decreases the oxygen levels because it creates the, the water is just different in, in in terms of its temperature and it, it creates differences in terms of the oxygen levels of water at different levels. That is banned for obviously bad for wildlife because there's more oxygen in certain parts of the water than there are others. Oxygen tends to go towards um, other levels. So that having floating solar on top of some of these reservoirs stops that stratification from happening, increases the biodiversity of these bodies of water as well. So it's really interesting to see that the, the level of thought and the level of um, the, or the depth of some of these scientific studies which are going in. So, um, yeah, I think that's it's one of those, it's just one of those areas where we'll continue to track, and we've already seen some significant amounts of movement um, early in twenty twenty one. So I can I can see it really accelerating this year. We've even seen. Sorry to keep bringing it back to batteries. We've even recently seen the announcement of a floating battery storage project as well uh, from Vortzilla in uh, the Philippines, I believe. Where again, there's you know not a huge amount of land, lots of islands. Um, and so you have these floating barges providing diesel power at, at peaking at peak times for the grid. Um, so, yeah, I mean, obviously the idea will be that they'll start replacing some of those with floating solar as well <laughs> um, in order to complement the um, in order to complement that um, peaking generation and to reduce the amount of diesel they need. Um, you've got some batteries basically on a barge, which, to be honest, whereas floating solar looks really cool because you've got basically a solar farm floating on the water, this is actually just a boat with a bunch of batteries in it. So <laughs> <laughs> I think, well, we can stay on batteries now because um, next up, Andy, we, it's finding happening. Well, if President Biden gets his way, then we will have a storage investment tax credit. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely, definitely. Um, will President Biden get his way? That is the question. But yeah, for a long time, people have uh, lobbied for the extension of the ITC investment tax credit um, that is applicable for solar generation. Um, and it's a bit of a complex accounting system the way it works, but essentially it gives you about 30, reduces your capital cost of your solar project by about 30% um, through your tax liabilities. Um, and it's twofold, isn't it? So President Biden has tabled a, is it $1.7 trillion plan or $2 trillion? I think it's I mean, 2.3 now. It keeps you well, What's 0.3 of a trillion between friends? <laughs> yeah. um, but yeah, I mean, one of the the non you know the non direct investment sides of that was the call for 
the investment tax credit therefore to be extended to batteries and at the moment it only applies for battery storage if uh, deployed simultaneously with solar I believe uh, which is kind of you know it's it's better than nothing but at the same time what if you want to retrofit batteries to an existing solar farm um, you know what if you just want to do standalone batteries it doesn't always make sense to put batteries and solar in the same place um, you might want to put the batteries more strategically close to where the the load is rather than where the generation is you know um, and so yeah so investment tax credit is a big part of the I mean that said like the investment tax credit is um, existing only for solar with storage is one of the reasons why solar plus storage or solar co-located with storage has really taken off in the States. So again, in that respect, it's definitely not a bad thing. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I think a lot of, of folks do believe that it would support the, um, you know, it would support the deployment of energy storage to the degree uh, that is needed. So the Energy Storage Association uh, of the US um, has long been advocating on behalf of um, its membership, uh, which is, you know, stakeholders from across the entire uh, value chain of energy storage for the investment tax credit. And uh, Jason Bowen, who's the interim CEO at the Energy Storage Association, um, said on, on again on behalf of the Energy Storage Association, it's really positive step uh, that Biden put forward this uh, what's called the American Jobs Plan, um, because it puts the you know energy storage as kind of a priority. Um, and not just in the investment tax credit, but in other areas, um, including manufacturing, which is, you know, perhaps something for a whole nother uh, podcast episode. But is you know, it's a really big, um, really big aspect of kind of scaling up the industry and, you know, even of sustainability there kind of thing. So. So, yeah, so the investment tax credit um, and, you know, it's not while obviously us in the media, we're very good at being extremely reductive and bringing things down, you know, to whether it's kind of Donald Trump versus the world or Elon Musk versus dinosaurs. Uh, evolution. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he's against the dinosaurs. <laughs> you wouldn't create them just to beat them up, would he? Well. Yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it past him, I guess. Uh, but yeah, so, I mean, there have been, you know, several other um, fairly prominent politicians in the US that have pushed for an investment tax credit. And, you know, in these div divisive times, um, I think it's also really important to bear in mind that actually efforts to, firstly, efforts on decarbonisation and renewable energy are not the sole preserve of, of Democrats in the US and, you know, the so-called progressive or liberal agenda or whatever you want to call it. Um, it's maybe slightly weighted in that favour, but there are a lot of, you know, Republicans and, and Conservatives that, A, do care about the planet, um, and you know, do care about climate change and recognize that science is a real thing. Um, but B also recognize that it makes economic sense now and you know it's a it's a real business with real returns and, and real investment, you know, and something that can not only, I guess, you know, support their self-interest, uh, but also support the interests of their constituents. And so yeah, so these moves to push for the energy storage uh, investment uh, tax credit, have been politically bipartisan, you know, combination of uh, Republicans and Democrats from, from Congress 
um, and the Senate. So that's been going on for at least since about 2016. So been a long time coming. Um, I think you noted in your PV Tech, um, you know, the PV Tech write up of the infrastructure plan that it's going to face a fair bit of difficulty to get this infrastructure plan through. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it, I wonder what's been happening in, in the US since 2016, which might have prevented this from kind of making <laughs> progress. Um, yeah. But I think, which which leads me to, yeah, I mean, given, I mean, the certain certain facets of the of the plan do obviously have bipartisan support. Renewable action is one of those. Um, but it's without, it goes without saying that a Democrat trying to pass a $2.3 trillion um, government handout is not going to sit well with the vast majority of, of Republicans and, and that there is already um, consternation in some quarters about how this is going to be paid for. So there is a, a it's largely going to be opted for by a 7% increase in corporation tax in the US, which, funny enough, hasn't sat well with Republicans. Um, this also, um, there was a, a bit more of an update from the Department of the Treasury yesterday, um, which released its tax report uh, to cost the plan, which also said that explicitly they would raise um, fossil fuel subsidies um, to the tune of something like thirty-five billion um, over the next um, few years. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's a spectacularly good thing. Um, fossil fuels have had too easy a ride of it from a financial perspective. For well, hang on, hang on. Do you, do you not just say raise fossil fuel subsidies? Raid. Raid. Can I go and absolutely attacking them? Oh, okay. Okay. So, um, yeah, so um, they're going to basically target these and remove certain subsidies for fossil fuel um, companies. Um, is that going to sit well with Republicans as well? Probably not. Um, especially, especially when you look at the US from on a, on a political map. Um, obviously, Biden didn't win Ohio, but he did win Pennsylvania. Um, they are two quite uh, heavily weighted um, or states where a lot of their economy is heavily weighted towards fossil fuels. So, again, it, it stands to reason that there's going to be some political division there. Um, I just, I, I can't see it pass it through, passing through the kind of the, the full process or the full political progress, um, process in the US. So, are bits of it going to be reduced or watered down? Possibly. Are bits, are, is the Biden administration going to pick and choose? bits to pass through budgetary reconciliation. Possibly that could be something they look to do, but they're not going to be able to get through $2.3 trillion worth. So things might get watered down. Things might get lost in in the in the process, I guess. Um, but I suppose the ITC is sounds to me like one of the lower risk portions of that. Yeah. You know, definitely. and I mean, it kind of is a handout. And, you know, from what, what's been said, basically, you know, America kind of needs that to to get its infrastructure back on on track, kind of thing. But at the same time, it could also be a very powerful investment for their future, really. I guess, couldn't it? And you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. Hopefully, exactly. some some of that will at least be considered that way and you know, and introduced. I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, very quickly, then, Andy, what's what's happening else in the world of storage? Oh, we're doing more storage stuff. More storage. Excellent, excellent. All right, cool. Well, so just very quickly, um, there was a tender in South Africa for dispatchable power. 
um, hosted by the uh, uh, da, 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 well by the government essentially, um, but it's procurements backed by the grid operator and transmission sorry the transmission operator um, ESCOM. And so basically, South Africa has a huge sort of shortfall of energy that it needs. Um, and there's something like, I mean, the shortfall itself is something like 13 gigawatts, but the amount that it needed to procure as an extreme, uh, you know, emergency measure over the next couple of years. Um, so they have to be up and running by middle of 2022, so middle of next year, uh, are two gigawatts of energy capacity that can dispatch between the hours of 5 a.m. and 9.30 p.m. each day. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there was some natural gas um, stuff that won out, but also very significantly uh, something like 400 megawatts of solar and up to 1,300 megawatt hours, 1.3 gigawatt hours of grid-connected um, energy storage. So that's been a really exciting one. Um, although a lot of people have assumed on social media and stuff and in questions to me, that that might include flow batteries and stuff. The technology has to be proven and mature. So it will most likely be lithium iron. But yeah, that's pretty exciting stuff. Um, elsewhere, we've had a couple of big world firsts, or uh, well, not world firsts, national firsts, I suppose. Um, Turkey got its first grid-connected battery storage system. And, you know, while it's way smaller than some of the stuff we've been accustomed to covering over the last few weeks... Uh, it's 500 kilowatts, uh, 500 kilowatt hours, I believe. Um, it is still marks a big start for a country which has still only got about 4% uh, solar in its generation mix and, you know, obviously could do better than that. Um, so so that's, yeah, in Turkey, that that's uh, went into operation through Agreco um, a few, uh, a couple of weeks ago and then was officially announced last week. Um, similarly, in Lithuania, um, the first grid scale battery was deployed, and that is a sorry, it wasn't deployed. It is un, it's going to be deployed, but it's a one megawatt project, and that is trialing the use of battery storage instead of building out grid infrastructure. So it's effectively going to be a virtual transmission line uh, to assist kind of absorbing um, excess electricity and putting it back when you know there's not enough electricity uh, on the grid for the grid operator, LitGrid. Um, and that one's coming from Fluence. Uh, we mentioned earlier that Mongolia is getting its first solar and storage project uh, with the sodium sulfur battery from NGK. So that's just a few of the exciting ones that we come across. Oh yeah, and there was in India, although India's got a few battery storage projects already, um, it got its first community scale uh, kind of distribution grid connected battery storage system that will help a local community in uh, Delhi uh, to balance their supply and demand of electricity. So again, that was pretty exciting. Uh, breakneck speed here, and I've probably missed a few out, but yeah, those are some of the exciting ones. Um, and there's been a fair bit of finance news as well. Um, so Europe is continuing to support manufacturing of batteries within, uh, you know, European territories, and Volkswagen um, continued its investment in Northvolt, uh, which is a startup. You know, I'm sure we've spoken about them on the uh -huh. uh, podcast before. It's a startup making several gigawatt hours of, of batteries in Europe, starting from 
uh, well, from about next year and ramping up to through to about 2026. Uh, Volkswagen is altering $14 billion worth of batteries uh, from Northolt. And we heard exclusively from Northolt that actually, while that is basically in the automotive sector, that should have a big knock-on effect into stationary storage with Northolt um, providing about 20% of its batteries to the stationary storage sector. Um, and very quickly, while we're still on that, we've heard from the European Commission, uh, which us as British people have less and less to do with, sadly, as time goes on. We have on. a checkered okay. history with, the, with that crowd. Well, let's hope we can still be friends, huh? Yeah. Um, yeah, so Europe is hoping to be the second biggest manufacturing region for lithium-ion batteries uh, after China. Um, in the coming years. And I say after China because they're going to be a still a pretty big drop-off after first place into second. So, like, I think even by the most ambitious estimates, and um, I believe it was Bloomberg Neff that, that came up with this, um, but, you know, huge apologies to whoever it was, if not. But they believe that, you know, from about, well, from less than 5% share today, Europe will have about 15% share within 10, 15 years. Um, Europe is targeting about a 25% share of the global market. But, you know, so essentially nearly all of the rest of that will be China in the years to come. And the US is, you know, sadly for them, is way behind on this. Um, so, again, coming from Joe Biden, uh, Pre uh, President Harris, Vice President Harris and crew, um, there's, you know, rumblings that the US is also going to support manufacturing. Um, but at the moment, it's really China dominating, South Korea and Japan doing some stuff, um, and Europe kind of building up rapidly um, at the moment. Excellent. Um, I will end on, on a good note, um, as we always try to, but um, the UK has solved climate change. Hey. I mean, it hasn't, but um, it did have its greenest ever uh, day on the grid um, over the recent bank holiday, um, courtesy of a lot of wind, um, some bright conditions for um, a lot of solar, um, and uh, reduced demand, obviously, with it being a bank holiday. Um, the grid carbon um, intensity dropped to 32 grams per kilowatt hour. Um, sorry, 30 grams of CO2 per, per kilowatt hour. Um, that's uh, the lowest it's ever been, which is fantastic to see. Um, is the work done? No. Um, is there an awful lot left to do? Yes. Uh, we need to get that down to, um, I think the interim target is 50, 50 grams, but that obviously needs to be every day, not just on a on a bank holiday, um, uh, before we look to um, completely eradicate kind of grid carbon emissions um, towards a net zero status. So um, it, it's, it's a significant achievement, um, but yeah, a, a long way to go. Um, I mean, it, it's, it's good news all the same. I mean, essentially, every grid around the world needs to be the greenest it's ever been every day, you know, sequentially, really, doesn't it? Yeah, that, that would be the end. <laughs> <laughs> but it, is, it is nice to see. And, you know, I guess the fact that there's still a lot of work to do means that hopefully we'll still be in a job for a while longer, I guess. That, that, that I, I would like that. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. That would be good. I, I mean, if it's, if it's okay with you guys, I reckon we stick with this until the climate change thing is solved and then rebrand as dinosaur media in, in 2013. I'm, I'm again, equally happy with that, but we'll see. We'll, we'll keep, Excellent. we'll keep our ears to the ground. Um, guys, thank you very much for joining 
me today. Um, we will uh, hopefully, if unless um, something drastic happens, either due to climate change or whatever Elon Musk is up to in, in California, we'll see you next month. Thanks very much. See you next month. Thanks a lot.